You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. I'm Harriet Vickers. Coming up, why it's important to catch Kleinfelter syndrome early and some advice for doing so. Someone presents with all the classical symptoms, it's a pretty straightforward diagnosis. But if someone, a 25-year-old man, is presenting for depression, you know, it really takes a careful history to be able to glean uh, a diagnosis of Kleinfelter's out of that presentation. But first, what would you think of an initiative supported by the World Bank, the World Health Organization, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the US National Institutes of Health, the Copenhagen Consensus and Innovations for Poverty Action? You couldn't be blamed for assuming that it works and does what it says on the tin. However, it turns out that's not the case with programmes to deworm children in countries such as India and Africa, which have the support of those very organisations. Paul Gardner told me what's going on. He's a professor at the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine and co-author of the Cochrane Review on deworming, the latest revision of which was published a couple of months ago. For a long time, there have been great claims that deworming populations of schoolchildren leads to improved nutrition, improved cognition, improved physical well-being and uh, raises in blood haemoglobin levels and as a result of this children then attend school better, they're they're just generally healthier, they uh, perform better at school because they are thinking better. As a result of that they pass more exams, they become more productive and the whole society benefits. WHO a few years ago produced um, a briefing document. They described that deworming essentially you know, improved the economic productivity of a population, promoted women's empowerment, reduced uh, hunger. Many very broad claims that considering it's just this single tablet given every few months getting a little bit out of hand almost. Yeah, it sounds as though it's been put up as a kind of a panacea for for poverty in a way. Well, it would be really lovely if it did work like this. And of course, everyone wants um, a fix out of poverty. Everybody wants a fix for nutritional deficiencies. Everybody wants a way to promote children doing well at school, you know. And so it sort of fits in lots of people's agendas and it also fulfills people's beliefs about deworming. People may have had experienced worm infections and realised that it does put you off your food and make you feel a bit unwell. So, so what did you find in terms of these claims of increased growth and cognitive ability and, and school attendance when you and your colleagues looked at um, the evidence for Cochrane? So for nutrition, the three studies that were done uh, over 15 years ago with quite big weight gains are still there in the analysis. But subsequent studies in in larger populations over longer periods of time haven't, haven't shown those kind of dramatic effects. In terms of cognition, the studies were always equivocal about this. And there was uh, the evidence was never very strong, and and that hasn't changed very much. In terms of hemoglobin, 
which is part of the argument that these worms uh, make children anemic and therefore make them slower to respond and, and less energetic. There's really quite good evidence of no effect, really, with haemoglobin. So the evidence has gradually built over time, suggesting that quite often no effect is demonstrated. There are still areas where there's small effects shown or in subgroups, but it's nowhere near as convincing uh, as the advocates would lead us uh, to believe. It's insufficient to base large amounts of investment in promoting these programs. So it's not saying that deworming is a is a bad thing and a child with worms should always be treated. There's absolutely no question about that. It's just whether countries should invest their own resources in these large population-based programs. It strikes us, looking at the claims, that there is a, a mismatch between the claims of benefit and what the evidence will currently support. Hmm. And with you showing that there isn't this strong evidence base, um, I mean, you've been saying this since 1997, what kind of response have you had to this? Have you seen any of these programmes stop or any of the claims retracted? I am not operating in the policy arenas where these decisions are made. So I am not sure how this review is being used. I think I, su- I suspect in the past it has been dismissed because it doesn't fit with what people are currently thinking and experts are currently thinking in the field and that the engagement has been more limited. On this occasion, partly because the review, we've brought it up using new methods and we've got the analysis is much clearer It's a more robust analysis and there is a more of an appreciation that systematic reviews of trials may be useful in areas of public health policy. So there's been more debate this time. It's probably a bit early to know uh, whether there is any disinvestment uh, going on yet in in this area. But I I definitely detect that there there is more traction, there is more debate around the topic and that's really what we want to see. I wondered if you had any ideas about why these charities were, were overstating the benefits in, in the first place. I mean, do you think it's simply well-meant, over-enthusiastic extrapolation, or do you think there's possibly something else going on? No, I mean, I honestly think that people really believe that this works, and people really are genuine in their desire to do good, their desire to help children, um, you know, this this looks great. It's it's just the job, really. It's nice and cheap. It's easy to deliver, and it's something everybody can do. And I, so, I, I genuinely think that there are quite a lot of people, including people in international agencies, who really do um, believe this work. And you know, Ken Warren from Rockefeller was a, a great believer in this, and many very good people have considered that this is a good thing to do. I think there are academic lobbies. I think there are people in parasitology. I mean, I don't think there's some big sort of commercial plot going on here. I do think drug companies will get credibility by donating drugs to these programs. But I I just think this intervention just may have taken a bit of a, a life of its own, really.
we're not saying that we have all the answers. We've, we're just raising some questions in the data that we've analysed in the reliable systematic review of well-done randomised controlled trials that are included in the review. Well, um, I guess that's what public health and medicine is all about, really. It is. It's about debate and it's about questioning things. And, I, you know, it's about trying to find out what, what the best answer is. Let's hope the debate uh, will continue in a constructive way. But uh, at the end of the day, uh, there are only finite resources. This is what this debate is about, is the effective use of scarce resources. Thanks there to Paul Garner. There's a feature on deworming now on bmj.com, along with a commentary by our editor Fiona Godley. Direct links are on the podcast page. Now, Kleinfelter's syndrome. In most cases, it's caused by an extra X chromosome and affects one in around 660 live male births. Yet Michael Wilson, who's an instructor of medicine at the Mayo Clinic Department of Medicine in Rochester, USA, thinks clinicians are slow to spot it. Here's his advice on diagnosis. To begin with, could you just give us an idea of the, the classical clinical presentation of someone with Kleinfelter's? I mean, what are the, the characteristic features that primary care practitioners should be looking out for? The textbook example, or so-called textbook example, of an individual with Kleinfelter's syndrome is small, firm testes, infertility, tall stature, wide hips, sparse facial hair, sparse body hair, possibly gynecomastia, and usually some component of scholastic or psychosocial morbidity. But I I think we should sort of exercise some caution when talking about the classic uh, clinical presentation because there really is no one-size-fits-all to this diagnosis. And and some patients may have all of those symptoms and features, and uh, many patients may have only very subtle features. Patients may have uh, essentially almost normal clinical findings as well. Mm. Is there anything that all patients will have? Yes. So the most common features are uh, infertility and small testes. And that's present in approximately, you know, 99 to 100% of patients. And then the other uh, symptoms or features that I mentioned, you know, they may occur anywhere from 30 to 75% of patients. So I think one of the key physical exam findings is decreased testicular volume. And oftentimes it can be easily missed or overlooked by practicing clinicians. So I think uh, if a patient presents with symptoms that may be consistent with Kleinfelter syndrome, it's really important to remember to do a testicular examination. And that can often, you know, uh, lead one to further testing that would either confirm or rule out Kleinfelter syndrome. When clinicians go on to do further investigations, what are the, the kind of things that come up here? Really, the next best tests to pursue are to measure the total testosterone concentration as well as uh, levels of luteinizing hormone and follicular stimulating hormone. And in adults with Kleinfelter syndrome, that typically will reveal high levels of luteinizing hormone and follicular stimulating hormone 
and low or low normal levels of testosterone. And based on that and uh, the clinical presentation, really one could then proceed to the gold standard of diagnosis, which is chromosome assessment, karyotyping of the uh, peripheral lymphocytes chromosome. Sure. Okay. And your article is um, one in our easily missed series. Why do you think Kleinfelter's is easily missed? Why are clinicians slow to, to cotton on this diagnosis? There's such a wide variety of uh, clinical presentation. So while, while some patients may come in with all of the classic symptoms, other patients and many patients will have very subtle symptoms. And therefore, you know, people with subtle symptoms or, or no symptoms may not present to uh, the doctor's office for evaluation until consequences of the syndrome are apparent, such as infertility or chronic hypogonadism. One other reason is, you know, even if they do present for evaluation in the physician's office, especially among general practitioners in the adult setting, there's often a lack of awareness that this could even be a diagnostic possibility. Someone presents with all the classical symptoms, it's a pretty straightforward diagnosis. But if someone, a 25-year-old man, is presenting for depression, you know, it really takes a careful history to be able to glean uh, a diagnosis of Kleinfelter's out of that presentation. Do you think patients can be embarrassed talking about some of these symptoms as well? Do you think it's difficult for clinicians to, to get them to fully disclose what's going on? I guess it's really what are the patients coming in and talking about. They're talking about their depression or anxiety, they're talking about their sexual history, they're talking about their body image, they're talking about infertility and hypogonadism. And I think at times it is difficult, especially for younger men, to be able to come in and discuss these concerns with their provider. Uh, but, But I think, you know, possibly even a greater concern is sometimes it's difficult for providers to discuss these concerns with the patients. Uh, patients are afraid that the doctor is going to minimize their concern or that, that the physician himself or herself may even be embarrassed to talk about sensitive issues such as sexuality with the patient. Do you have any tips for clinicians on, on how to approach that consultation? So I think, you know, it it really depends on what the presenting symptom is. I think maintaining a wide differential diagnosis and knowing what key questions to ask. And then I think really the key to to being able to have this discussion with the patient is to be able to gain their trust and to be able to discuss these issues in a confident manner so that they feel comfortable uh, and that the clinician feels comfortable in discussing uh, all of the information that's necessary to make a diagnosis and pursue a management plan. Great. Okay. Do you have any figures around um, misdiagnosis or, or delayed diagnosis? I mean, how common is Kleinfelter's and, and do we know how often diagnosis is delayed? So Kleinfelter syndrome is, uh, is relatively common. It affects about 1 in 600 uh, male live births, but it's, it's surprising that probably 90% of boys with Kleinfelter syndrome remain undiagnosed and up to 75% of adults with the, with the condition remain undiagnosed. Hmm. And, and what are the issues related to delayed diagnosis or, or no diagnosis? 
if the diagnosis is delayed, then uh, there are some chronic effects of Kleinfelter syndrome, which can be detrimental to the patient. So the first of those would be chronic hypogonadism, which has been associated with a variety of conditions such as osteoporosis and metabolic syndrome and diabetes mellitus and some cardiovascular complications. I think the second issue with delayed diagnosis is all of the psychosocial and scholastic uh, morbidity. This is often very devastating for patients, and they have a lot of difficulty uh, throughout their life integrating into society. And, and lastly, one of the most devastating complications is infertility. And damage to the uh, testes occurs starting around puberty. And so, you know, younger men may have more sperm than older men. And so if cryopreservation of sperm can be accomplished, the earlier the better. And that offers perhaps the best hopes for future fertility. If one could diagnose the syndrome around the age of puberty, that's typically when testosterone replacement therapy could start if necessary. And thinking about future fertility could also begin around that time. Once the diagnosis has been made, I mean, we've talked a lot about getting to that point, um, but what about beyond that? What are the management options? It's really appropriate to refer the patient to a provider or a specialist that has clinical expertise in treating patients with Klinefelter syndrome. And treatments that may be considered include testosterone uh, replacement therapy, which really is indicated if there's evidence of androgen deprivation and usually starts around the time of puberty and lasts an entire lifetime. Other uh, management issues are assessing for psychosocial morbidity and providing a comprehensive plan to ensure the best success in those areas of life. And then really there needs to be long-term screening for associated conditions of hypogonadism such as osteoporosis and diabetes and metabolic syndrome and hypertriglyceridemia, etc. Other management options include referral to support groups uh, that can often aid in, in some of the counseling and psychosocial effects of, of a diagnosis of Klinefelter syndrome. You know, as a general practitioner, I think it's important to be there for your patients and to know that this, uh, usually it is a very difficult news to face and just mm. to be there in general to support your patients. Great. Well, Mike, thanks very much for uh, offering us your advice and expertise on this. Thank you so kindly. I'm delighted to participate. Thank you so much. That wraps it up for this week. Next Friday, we'll be discussing the issues faced by survivors of sexual violence in India. In the light of public horror over the gang rape and death of a young woman on a bus, what's being done? Join us then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.